silent prayer before we enter into the study of the Word of God, and it's also an opportunity to confess any sins that we haven't already. The morning is young, so uh, let's, let's start by prayer. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to gather. We ask that you enlighten us by your word. We thank you that you recorded it for us. We thank you that you have weaved your truth into the scriptures that we may study them and be edified by them. We ask that you implant it in our souls, that we may worship you through it. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, we're in a study of the covenants, the four major covenants, which is the Abrahamic, the Mosaic, the Davidic, and the New Covenant. By way of review, the covenants provide a big picture roadmap for God's plan for the ages, God's plan for history. Creation, the fall, redemption, and God's coming kingdom. If you want to sum up the history of humanity, where we've been, where we are, and where we're going, you can sum it up with those four things. Creation, fall, redemption, and God's coming kingdom. And the four major covenants that we're studying, they color what all of those things look like. Now, the first of those two, creation and the fall, those essentially are finished by Genesis chapter 3. I'm not saying that the scriptures don't address those later on. Of course they do. They, they address creation. They address the fall. Both of those things many times. But the events themselves are completed. Creation and the fall by Genesis 3. And so really what we're talking about essentially in the, the covenants is we're talking about the other two elements of the meta narrative of history, meta narrative, the big picture of, of the scripture. We're talking about redemption and God's coming kingdom. That's what the covenants really give us a roadmap to. We've seen, we've begun really, we saw an introduction and we've started an analysis of the Abrahamic covenant. And we've seen that the Abrahamic covenant is unconditional. We've seen that through a number of different ways. Number one, we saw the five divine I wills in Genesis 12 verses 1 through 3. That's where you first see the promise of the covenant, Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. Then it's formalized into a covenant two chapters later in chapter 15. But when you study Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, which you've heard me say this before, but I'll say it again, Dwight Pentecost used to say, you cannot understand the Bible if you do not understand Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. It is that, that passage is that essential to the Scriptures. So we start with Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, which is really the promise from God to Abraham. It gets formalized into a covenant in chapter 15, and it's repeated elsewhere in Genesis. It's repeated then. God repeats it to Abraham's son Isaac and to Abraham's grandson Jacob, all of whom are believers. But what we've seen is that the covenant, the Abrahamic covenant, is unconditional. We saw that through the five divine I wills in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. We've seen that the covenant is everlasting. God uses the word olam, which means everlasting. Remember, God is from everlasting to everlasting, from olam to olam. He uses the word olam to describe the covenant that he made with 
Abraham. So we know that it is unconditional. And finally, last time, just by way of introduction and by way of review, last time we saw that ancient ritual that men would engage in with respect to a treaty where they would take animals and cut them in half and they'd put the carcasses of the animal on each side and the two men would hold hands. That's what men do as a part of a, a ritual in that part of the world in the, in the Middle East. They would hold hands and walk through the carcasses as a ritual, as a ceremony, with respect to the agreement that they had just made, the treaty that they had just made. And the, the, the history there, the, the symbolism is, you're looking at the other man, you're holding hands as you walk through, and each one of you is thinking, pal, this is what's going to happen to you if you breach this agreement. If you violate this, this treaty, you're going to be just like one of these carcasses that is cut in half. That's the symbolism of the carcasses. But what we saw last time is the ritual in the book of Genesis that, that God went through with Abraham in Genesis 15, that same ritual, which was the ritual of the day, was very different because Abraham's asleep. He's sleeping. He's not holding God's hand walking through the carcasses because they're not on equal footing. They're not equal negotiating partners, you might say, in, in our lingo. Abraham's asleep. And it is God who passes through the carcasses as the flame. It's, it's, the, it's the Shekinah. He passes through as this, this torch, this flame, similar to the, the column of fire that led the Israelites in the wilderness. And so we saw that the Shekinah went through the carcasses, symbolizing that Abraham is actually not a participant in the Abrahamic covenant there is one participant in the covenant, and that is God himself. Abraham is a recipient of the covenant, but not a participant, because the, the covenant is dependent on the unilateral, unconditional, unequivocal covenant and commitment of God. So we've seen that the covenant that God made with Abraham is unconditional to, to assign five words to it. You, can, you, you would say that the covenant is unilateral. It's unconditional, it's literal, it's everlasting, and it is, make no mistake, irrevocable. Unilateral, unconditional, literal, everlasting, and irrevocable. Because when something is everlasting, eternal, it's forever. Those five words are very important with respect to the covenant. Finally, we saw by way of review that the covenant depends on the integrity of God because, as the writer of Hebrews put it in Hebrews 6, God swore by his own name because there was nothing higher by which God could swear by. There is nothing of greater weight, of greater significance than the name of God. And so God swore the covenant to Abraham, staking it on his own name, which is to say his character. The covenant given to Abraham by God, will cease to exist as soon as God ceases to exist, which is to say, never. This is the picture of the covenant that we have seen so far, and since Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, is so important. Let's look back at that passage one more time. Genesis 12, verse 1, reads like this. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go forth from your country and from your relatives and from your father's house, to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you, 
and make your name great, and so you shall be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and the one who curses you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth will be blessed. As soon as Abraham obeyed the first statement in the first verse of chapter 12, which was a conditional statement. There is condition, a condition that's baked in here. Abraham is supposed to leave his homeland and go to the land that God will show him. As soon as Abraham did that, then everything else vested. Everything else became unconditional. That's where the five I wills show up in this text. Abraham's obedience of going to the promised land actually happened in two legs. He's in the land of Ur, in the city of Ur, of the Chaldeans, sometimes referred to as the Chaldees, Ur of the Chaldees, Ur of the Chaldeans, same thing. If you're reading from an old, from, from the, the, the old English of the King James, they'll always translate it Ur of the Chaldees. More, in, a, in a more modern way, we, we, we translate it Ur of the Chaldeans. He's supposed to leave that land and go to the land that God will show him. And it happens in two legs. There are two legs to the journey. Stephen recounts it like this in Acts 7. The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia. Mesopotamia is old Greek for the land between the two rivers. Mesopotamia is the land between the Tigris and the Euphrates River, also referred to as the land of the Chaldeans or the land of the Babylonians. These regions have different names because over centuries, many, many centuries, different peoples occupied the same region. So sometimes it's called the land of the Mesopotamians or the land of the Chaldeans or the land of the Babylonians because there were many cultures in that area, in that particular land, portion of land in the Middle East. And so they, they, they named it, associated with those different peoples during, uh, over the centuries. Stephen says, The God of glory appeared to our father Abraham when he was in Mesopotamia before he lived in Haran and said to him, Leave your country and your relatives and come into the land that I will show you. That's a quote, right? Just straight out of Genesis 12, verse 1. Stephen then says in verse 4, Then he left the land of the Chaldeans and settled in Haran. From there, after his father died, God had him moved to this country in which you are now living. This country is Canaan. It's the land of the Israelites. Remember, Stephen is standing there before the Sanhedrin, and they will shortly pick up stones to, to, to execute Stephen because they are offended at his words because the gospel of Jesus Christ is offensive. It's offensive to the unbeliever. We'll, we'll see that at the 1045. I, I get ahead of myself. So, so, so Stephen relates these events in terms of two legs of the journey. Two legs of the journey. Leg number one was from Ur to Haran, and leg number two was from Haran to Canaan. Now, when you, when you study these two legs... The promise is in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3. So you have to go before that to get leg number 1, and you have to go after that to get leg number 2. Please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 11, verse 27. Here we're going to see leg number 1, as well as some family history with respect to Abraham. Genesis 11, verse 27 reads like this. Now these are the records of the generations of Terah. Terah became the father of Abram, Nahor, and Haran. 
and Haran became the father of Lot. Terran, let me just pause there for a minute. Terran was born around 2296 B.C. Abram was born around 2166 B.C. Abram, later named Abraham by God, will die around 1991 B.C. So Abraham lives about 175 years. These dates, I'm, I'm, I'm using the, the dates from uh, Eugene Merrill in his great work, Kingdom of Priests. And so this is just kind of a, 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 a listing of dates of, of, of where we are in the, in the timeline of history. So sometimes you'll, you'll hear me refer to Abraham was around the 2000s. If you want to do it kind of shorthand, you'd say Abraham's around the 2000s. Moses is around the 1500s. David is around the 1000s. And the reason we say Abraham is 2000, around the 2000s is because he dies 1991 B.C. By the way, I don't use B.C.E. Before Common Era. They're cheating. They're, cheat- they're using our system. Right? The, the system of years is tied to the Lord's system. The year of our Lord, A.D., B.C., before Christ, okay? They cheat. They use our system, and they just assign another word because they want, in their unbelief, they want to, to erase it, but they know they can't fully erase it. I'm, I'm off topic here for a minute, so sorry about that. My point, though, is I want you to see where we are in the, in the, the timeline of years. We're way, way, way back. We're 4,000 years back or so. Initially, This man's name was Abram, which meant exalted father. And then God will later change his name to Abraham, father of a multitude. But before we get too deep into the family history, I do need to talk about the worship of this family, the worship of Terah and his sons. They were, well, I'll just let Joshua speak for the matter. Joshua 24.2. Joshua said to all the people, Thus says Yahweh, the God of Israel, From ancient times your fathers lived beyond the river, that's beyond the Euphrates River, in the land between the two rivers, what the the Greeks called the Mesopotamia. Your fathers lived beyond the river, beyond the Euphrates River, namely Terah, the father of Abram, and the father of Nahor, and they served other gods. This is a very disturbing statement from Joshua. The they there isn't just referring to Terah. The they there isn't just referring to Nahor. It's referring to Abraham. Abraham was an idol worshiper. This is very surprising because the scripture describes Abraham with these great glowing descriptions, the friend of God. That's what the scripture calls Abraham. The scripture calls Abraham, Abraham the believer. And the scripture says that those who follow the pattern of faith of Abraham are sons of Abraham. So we call ourselves sons of Abraham. The scripture describes Abraham in glowing, glowing terms. But like all of us, like every single human being, Abraham began as an unbeliever, like everybody else. And in faith, he responded to God's gracious call. The point that I want you to see here is that Father Abraham, as we would describe him, the friend of God, started out as the enemy of God. 
like every other human being. And God chose him not because he was so amazing. No, he was under God's wrath like everybody else before they, they trust in the Lord. God chose Abraham because God chose Abraham. Because God is sovereign, period. God could have chosen a man out of Africa or a man out of Asia or a man out of Scandinavia with blonde hair and blue eyes. But he didn't. He chose a Semitic man because he chose him. Because he is sovereign, period. End of analysis. No further inquiry is needed. God chose Abraham out of his gracious mercy. He called him out of his gracious mercy. It was an unmerited call, a sovereign call, and Abraham in faith responded. Keep reading in verse 28 of Genesis 11. We read, Haran, which is one of Abraham's brothers, died in the presence of his father Terah in the land of his birth in Ur of the Chaldees. So the family, Terah and Abraham and and his brothers, they're from Ur of the Chaldeans or the Chaldees. And so if you look at a map, you'll see initially theologians used to believe that Ur was down here close to the Persian Gulf. So we're talking, this is is the land of modern-day Iraq. Now there's, there's some belief that Ur was really farther north up here. Here's the Euphrates. And so there, there's a question. Was Ur down, down further close to the Persian Gulf? Or was, was it further north? And we really don't have a definitive answer on that. But what we do know is that Ur was a very sophisticated, very advanced city. It was a place of comfort and luxury. And God called Abraham from that place of comfort and ease to an undeveloped, uncivilized place, to Canaan. Think of Canaan as the wild, wild west. This is, Canaan was not, God wasn't calling Abraham to some white sanded beach in the Caribbean to, to, to sip on frozen drinks. He's calling Abraham out of his city of Ur, a place of comfort and ease. He's calling him to an undeveloped, uncivilized place. Ur, like maybe most modern cities today and modern cities then, was a very idolatrous place. And so God calls Abraham out of the city of idolatry, out of his father's home and his father's culture of idolatry to a different land, to the land of Canaan, which, of course, had plenty of its own idols. Canaan did, the peoples of Canaan. But God called Abraham to this new place out of Ur, out of his father's household, out of his father's idolatrous culture. He called him to a new place to make a new race through Abraham, a race who would be dedicated, separated unto God. At least that's how they would be called by God, called out from among the peoples. The most recent race that has been created by God is the Jewish race which is the race that God would create through Abraham and then his believing son Isaac and his believing son Jacob. It doesn't go through Esau, an unbeliever. The Jewish race is established by the father, the son, and the grandson, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, all of whom were believers. You'll hear me mention that many, many times because it is important to understand that the Jewish race is a race that is designated by God, that is separated by God for a special purpose of blessing, a blessing to them and a blessing to the nations. Keep reading in verse 29. We read this. 
Verse 29 of Genesis chapter 11, Abram and Nahor took wives for themselves. The name of Abram's wife was Sarai, and the name of Nahor's wife was Milcah, the daughter of Haran, the father of Milcah and Isaac. Sarai was barren. She had no children. Now Sarai, the name Sarai means princess, which suggests Abram means exalted father. Sarai means princess. That suggests that Abram and Sarah, Sarai, later named Sarah, were part of the aristocracy of Ur. God will later rename Sarai to Sarah, showing her new relationship with God because God would make her the mother of nations, to quote Genesis 17, verse 16. Keep reading in verse 31. Terah took Abram, his son, and Lot, the son of Haran, his grandson, and Sarai, his daughter-in-law, his son Abram's wife, and they went out together from Ur of the Chaldeans in order to enter the land of Canaan. And they went as far as Haran and settled there. The days of Terah were 205 years, and Terah died in Haran. This is the first leg, the first leg of the journey. From Ur to Haran, where they lived until the patriarch of the family, Terah, died. Then the second leg of the journey you find in Genesis 12, verses 4 through 5, from Haran to Canaan. Look at Genesis 12, verse 4. So Abram went forth as the Lord had spoken to him, and Lot went with him. Now Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Abram took Sarai his wife and Lot his nephew and all their possessions which they had accumulated and the persons which they had acquired in Haran and they set out for the land of Canaan. Thus they came to the land of Canaan. So what we're seeing here is leg number one. If Ur is down here in the south, leg number one is that. Or if Ur is up here in the north, leg number one is that. Then leg number two is from Haran. Remember Abraham, when he first arrives in the land, he he goes to Shechem. So leg number two is from Haran to Shechem to to describe the, the full journey. When you put all of this together, what we're seeing is that God's instruction to Abraham to, to leave Ur and to go to the land that God would show him, that happened in chapter 11. Because in chapter 11, at the end of chapter 11, we, we, we see their departure from Ur of the Chaldeans. The departure begins in chapter 11. God instructed Abraham to leave in chapter 11, but it's not recorded until Genesis chapter 12. It's not recorded until the, the, the instruction of God is not recorded until Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. And that's because the history of Abram really doesn't begin in earnest until chapter 12. Remember his father, Terah, who's the patriarch of the family, he dies at the end of chapter 11. Then the baton is passed from Terah to his son, Abram. Abram becomes the patriarch of the family at the end of chapter 11 when his father dies. And that's when the the events, the story, the history of Abraham really begins in, in, in earnest. Here's what's fascinating about the departure from Ur to Canaan in the two legs. God doesn't tell him where he's going. God says, Abraham, you leave Ur. Leave. Pack up your stuff 
and leave. For the rest of your life, leave. And once you get on the road, I'm going to show you where you're going. The U.S. Census Bureau says that Americans move in their lifetime over 11 times to different places. Now, for some people, some people move a whole lot more than that and some people a whole lot less than that. But on average, over 11 times. Not in ancient, not in ancient times, not in the ancient world. It's incredibly difficult to move. Right? There are no U-Haul trucks. There's no bubble wrap. There's no AC storage. It was very difficult to move. You're, 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 you're attached to your culture. And so most people were born and died in the same spot. But God tells Abraham to pack up everything and go. And when you're going, Abraham, then I'll tell you, where's your destination? This is a big, big deal. The writer of Hebrews says it even more clearly. Please turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8 reads like this. By faith, remember chapter 11 is the hall of faith. And the writer of Hebrews is listing out all of these people and their faith. The obedience that they did with respect to God. Obedience is a faith produces obedience. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 8. By faith, Abraham, when he was called, obeyed by going out of a place, excuse me, out to a place which he was to receive for an inheritance. And he went not knowing where he was going. You see that right there in verse 1 of chapter 12 as well, in Genesis 12. Because God said to Abraham, leave your land to a land which I will show you. This is part of the faith of Father Abraham. His faith is displayed by his obedience. We don't know exactly how God told Abraham to leave. Did he appear to him in a dream when, he was, when Abraham was still in Ur? Did he, did he speak to him audibly? We don't know. But God communicated to Abraham, pack up your stuff and go for the rest of your life. Don't stay there. Permanently go. But what's interesting is Abraham is not the patriarch. His father is the patriarch. And remember back then in in, in a patriarchal society, the father is the king of the clan. He's not just the king of the nuclear family, husband, wife, two kids. He's the king of the clan, the whole thing. He's the absolute authority in the clan. But God doesn't appear to Terah, the father. He appears to Abraham. And he says, Abraham, time to go. So somehow, someway, Abraham went to Terah and persuaded Terah, persuaded his father to leave. Because you see in Genesis 11 that Terah took the family with Abraham, <clears throat> excuse me, from Ur <clears throat> to Haran. So all of this is happening while Terah is still the patriarch of the family. The reason Abraham is called the friend of God is because he trusted God. The only way to please God is by trusting God, or to use the exact language of Hebrews, is by faith, which is another way of saying trusting, which is another way of saying relying upon, which is another way of saying believing in. The only way to please God is to trust in Him. 
If you refuse to trust in God, you do not please God. Simple. This is not complicated. We complicate it. We complicate it because we are rebels by nature. We are sinners by nature. We are stubborn, prideful by nature. Pride is the opposite of humility. Pride produces disobedience. Humility produces faith and obedience. And the reason Abraham is called the friend of God and the reason that we are called the sons of Abraham is because Abraham is a man of obedience, which is produced by his faith. Abraham's obedience revealed his faith. Obedience is a product of faith. The gospel is a command. God tells us that we must believe in Christ. So salvation is a product of obedience because faith produces obedience. We obey God by trusting in Christ. That's not a work that we do. It's faith. It's, 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 it's an obedience that we do to receive salvation. And that obedience is a product of faith. Because God tells us to obey in trusting in Christ. So we exercise faith. We trust in Christ. And that pleases God. That act of obedience, which is to say that act of faith. Then that's for salvation. Then for sanctification, our daily walk with Christ. Again, faith, which produces obedience. We trust Christ as opposed to the things of the world, even though the things of the world are so shiny. They're so attractive. They look so good. But God says, trust me, trust me, follow me, follow my ways, study my word, learn about me, obey me. And we do that as an act of faith. And that faith produces obedience. Obedience is a product of faith and obedience reveals one's faith. Keep reading in Hebrews 11, chapter, excuse me, chapter 11, verse 9. By faith he lived as an alien in the land of promise. Abraham lived as an alien in the land of promise, as in a foreign land, dwelling in tents with Isaac and Jacob, fellow heirs of the same promise. You see that? Abraham leaves the luxury of New York City, of some beautiful metropolis. Maybe we should use a different city than that. But <laughs> Abraham leaves the luxury of the city of Ur, to live in tents in the land of promise. And the reason he does that is because he trusts God. Simple. It's not complicated at all. Because he trusts God. God says, do it. And he says, yes, sir. That's it. Obedience. Verse 10. For he was looking for the city which has foundations, whose architect and builder is God. Now that's interesting. Abraham knew of the eternal Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem, before the Bible was even written. The heavenly Jerusalem, the eternal Jerusalem, is the new Jerusalem, is described in Revelation 21 and 22, the very last book of the Bible. And when Abraham lives, the Bible is not written. The Bible, the first five books of the Bible won't be written for another five centuries after Abraham. But Abraham knows of the eternal heavenly city of Jerusalem, the new Jerusalem, because God revealed it to him. And that's what he's looking forward to as he lives in tents in the land of promise, in the land of Canaan, an uncivilized place. You see, Abraham is a pilgrim in an unholy land, as are you and me. 
Think of yourself as a pilgrim in an unholy land. That's, that's just the reality of where we live because this is not our home. Abraham is looking forward to the city that has as its architect, its designer, and its, and, and its builder, its constructor, God himself. If you want to just have a moment of joy, you spend some time reading Revelation 21 and 22. As you see the parameters of the heavenly city with its streets of gold and the tree of life that the, that the residents of the city have access to. Also described elsewhere in the book of Revelation as the paradise of God. That's what Abraham is looking forward to. The writer of Hebrews tells us in Hebrews 11. That's what he's looking forward to in the land of adversity when he lives in tents in the pagan land of Canaan, but God told him to go there, and so he doesn't. That's not his home. That's not our home. Our forever home is the eternal city of God, the heavenly Jerusalem. What we're seeing in this part of Hebrews is the land part of the promise. Right? Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, land, seed, and blessing, as we have seen. Those are the three things that are embedded in Genesis 12, verses 1 through 3, the, the Abrahamic covenant. <clears throat> it's a promise of land. Go, leave your land and your father's house and go to the land that I will show you, land. It's a promise of blessing, of seed and of blessing. Seed, we'll see in a moment. Blessing, we'll see next time. Remember in Genesis 12, verse 2, there's a reference to the great nation. When God says, I will make you a great nation, he's talking about a, it, it's, it's, the, it's the seed part of the promise. Now, before we get to the seed part, let me, let me, let me identify one thing with respect to land. God tells Abraham that he will show him the land. You leave Ur, and when you're on the road, then I'm going to show you where to go. God says to Abraham. And then in Genesis 12, verse 1, you don't actually see the boundaries of the land because in Genesis 12, verse 1, if you'll turn back there, in Genesis 12, verse 1, it just says land. I will show you the land. But if you want the boundaries of the land that God promises to Abraham, you have to go a few chapters later to Genesis chapter 15. Genesis chapter 15, verse 18, that, that is, Genesis chapter 15 is that ritual that we saw last time with the carcasses of the animals. And so if you want to see the actual parameters of the land, go to verse 18 of chap, chapter 15 of Genesis. And there God says, <clears throat> or the text says, On that day the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying to your descendants, I have given this land from the river Egypt as far as the great river, the Euphrates, the Kenite and the Kenizzite and the Kadmonite and the Hittite and the Perizzite and the Rephraim and the Amorite and the Canaanite and the Gergesite and the Jebusite. In other words, all of their real estate I have given not to you. It doesn't say to Abraham here. Look at verse 18. It says to your descendants. Abraham's not going to possess all of that particular piece of real estate, a gargantuan piece of real estate in the Middle East. It's his descendants. And so if you want kind of some, some boundaries in your mind of what this real estate looks like, it ranges roughly from modern-day Egypt on the south to Turkey on the north, near the, 
the Iraqi border on the east. At no time has Israel ever possessed all of that land. Not even in the great times of David or Solomon. Certainly not today. They've never possessed all of the land. They will possess it. They will enjoy this land promise, including this particular piece of real estate that is described in Genesis 15. They will possess it when the Jew of the Jews returns to put his feet on this planet a second time, Jesus Christ, the Messiah. They will possess the full benefit of this land promise in the millennium. That's the land promise that's part of the covenant. Let me talk about the seed promise. In Genesis 12, verse 2, God promised that he would make Abraham's descendants into a great nation. So, as you can tell, we're going to be kind of jumping around the Bible here and and flipping back and forth because these covenants color the Scriptures. And so, in Genesis 12, 2, God promises Abraham that his descendants will be a great nation. God adds a little more meat on the bone. He puts a little more detail into it in Genesis chapter 22, verse 17. It reads like this. Indeed, this is, this is Yahweh speaking. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, Abraham. Genesis 22, verse 17. Indeed, I will greatly bless you, the you there is Abraham. And I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars of the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore, and your seed shall possess the gate of their enemies. In your seed all the nations of the earth will be blessed. Seed is the Hebrew word serah, a very, 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 very important word in the Scripture. You first find it at the very beginning. When rebellion happened, when Adam and Eve, and Eve mocked God, by sinning against him, by disobeying him. In their unbelief, they sinned. And so, in Genesis 3, God makes a promise. And that promise is the seed. It's the Sarah. So the first time you see Sarah mentioned is Genesis 3.15, where God, in the, in the punishment phase, remember he's, he's issuing out punishment for the events of rebellion in Genesis 3, the sin. And he says, and I will put enmity between you and the woman. The you there is the serpent, which we know from the book of Revelation is the devil himself. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. The woman here is a a word that is used to describe humanity. And between your seed, that's the devil's seed, and her seed. Between your Sarah and her Sarah. He, the he there is the seed of the woman, shall bruise you the devil, on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is a a principle that we've seen before. There is perpetual. God, in in Genesis 3, said that there will be perpetual conflict between the devil and humanity. Perpetual conflict. And the overwhelming majority of humanity are totally clueless. They just kind of skip along, la, 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 la. Clueless to the warfare that we are engaged in. Clueless to Satan's desire to destroy us. We're engaged in spiritual warfare. And the devil himself, the most powerful of all of God's angels, at least at his creation, back in eternity past, seeks to destroy you. 
and me. Do you believe that? You fail to believe that at your great peril. The devil and his fallen angels have a design which is to destroy God's image bearers. And you see it here in Genesis 3, declared early on by God. This is the result of sin entering into the human race, which Adam ushered in by his sin, by eating of the fruit. There's perpetual conflict between the devil and humans, between the serpent and humans, and between the seed of the serpent, the offspring of the serpent, and the seed of the woman, the offspring of the woman. The seed of the serpent is that portion of humanity aligned with the devil through unbelief. The seed of the serpent is that group of humanity which are unbelievers. Jesus described the religious leaders of his day who were seeking to kill him as the offspring of the devil. John 8, 44, you are of your father, the devil, and you want to do the desires of your father. He was a murderer from the beginning. You say, what are you talking about? The devil didn't kill Adam and Eve. I mean, Adam lived for another thousand years. What do you mean he killed Adam and Eve? Of course he did. Of course he did. He orchestrated the deaths of the first two human beings. Death was something that was foreign. We're accustomed to death. I mean, it, it, it is something that we don't like. It is something that, 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 we, that, 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 that troubles us as it should. But death is all around us. I mean, no one gets out of here alive. Right? The mortality rate of human beings is 100%. No exceptions. Every one of us in this room will go the way of all flesh, which is death, unless the Lord comes before that. But the idea of death in the garden is perfect environment. Paradise. No death. Nothing. No conflict. The devil orchestrated the deaths of the first human beings, and this is why Jesus describes him as a murderer from the beginning. The seed of the woman is the promised Messiah, right? Jesus is born of a woman, not of a man. It's a virgin birth. The seed of the woman is the promised Messiah and those who align with him by faith. The seed of the serpent is the devil and those who align with him by unbelief. The seed of the woman is Jesus, the Messiah, and those who align with him by faith. The conflict between the two seeds The seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman appears right away in the text. Look at Genesis chapter 4. Genesis chapter 4, verse 1. Adam and Eve are out of the garden. They've been banished from the garden as part of their sin. And in Genesis chapter 4, verse 1, we read this. Now the man, Adam, had relations with his wife, Eve, and she conceived and gave birth to Cain, And she said, I have gotten a man-child with the help of the Lord. Again, she gave birth to his brother Abel, and Abel was a keeper of flocks, but Cain was a tiller of the ground. So it came about in the course of time that Cain brought an offering to the Lord of the fruit of the ground. Abel, on his part, also brought of the firstlings of his flock and of of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel and for his offering. The Lord having regard for Abel and for the offering of of Abel was a sign of Abel's righteousness. Abel was righteous, declared righteous. Salvation has always been the same. 
in all ages. Salvation was the same for Abel as it is today in the year 2022. By grace, through faith, in the Lord. Abel is righteous. In fact, Jesus himself describes Abel as righteous in Matthew 23, verse 35. So you have the seed of the woman. Abel has aligned himself with the seed of the woman, capital S, seed of the woman, aligned himself with the Lord by faith. So he's part of the seed of the woman. He's declared righteous, as Jesus describes him in Matthew 23. But then we have Cain, the seed of the serpent. Keep reading verse 5. But Cain, and for his offering, he had no regard. God had no regard for his offering. So Cain became very angry, and his countenance fell. You see, Cain relies on his righteousness. My offering is good, God. It's good. How dare you not accept my offering? That's the attitude of Cain. I don't know what the offering was. Remember, he's a tiller of ground. So maybe he brought corn to God. Maybe he brought tomatoes to God. I don't know what he brought to God. Whatever it was, it was displeasing to God, not because the corn was displeasing or the tomatoes, but because his attitude was displeasing. He thought he was entitled to God's approval, to God's righteousness. This is a self-righteous man, Cain. This is a man of unbelief. This is a man who is aligned with the seed of the serpent. Keep reading in verse 6. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? And why has your countenance fallen? If you do well, will not your countenance be lifted up? And if you do not do well, sin is crouching at the door, and its desire is for you. You must master it. Cain told Abel his brother, and it came about when they were in the field that Cain rose up against Abel his brother and killed him. He's a murderer. Just like his father, the devil, the first murderer, Cain is aligned with the devil, seed of the serpent. Keep reading. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? It's not that the Lord didn't know where Abel was. This is a question that is, that is drawing out Cain, forcing Cain to a realization and to words with the Lord. Verse 9, then the Lord said to Cain, and said to Cain, where is Abel, your brother? And he said, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Further disrespect, further disbelief of God. Can you imagine lying straight up to God? That's what Cain is doing. He's aligned with the seed of the serpent. Verse 10, he said, what have you done? This is God speaking. The voice of your brother's blood is crying to me from the ground. Now you are cursed from the ground which has opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you cultivate the ground, it will no longer yield its strength to you. You will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, my punishment is too great to bear. Behold, you have driven me this day from the face of the ground, and from your face I will be hidden, and I will be a vagrant and a wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. So the Lord said to him, therefore, whoever kills Cain, vengeance will be taken on him sevenfold. And the Lord appointed a sign for Cain so that no one finding him would slay him. We don't know exactly what that sign was, but it was a significant sign. Verse 16, then Cain went out from the presence of the Lord and settled in the land of Nod, east of Eden. Cain had relations with his wife, and she conceived and gave birth to Enoch, different Enoch than the Enoch who walked with God. Gave birth to Enoch, and he built a city and called the name of the city Enoch after the name of his 
son. And thereafter, the story goes and it unfolds where the descendants of Cain created this wicked society. Jump over to verse 25. Now you see the contrast. Verse 25, Adam had relations with his wife again, and she gave birth to a son and named him Seth. For she said, God has appointed me another offspring in place of Abel, for Cain killed him. To Seth, to Seth, to Kim also a son was born, and he called his name Enosh. Then men began to call upon the name of the Lord. This is a new line. Two seeds, the seed of the serpent and the seed of the woman. The seed of the woman, you see it through Abel. He's aligned with the Lord. He's righteous, in the words of Jesus. The seed of the serpent, Cain, and Cain's line goes on. Cain kills Abel. So God brings another son for Adam and Eve, and that son is Seth, And through Seth's line will come the seed of the woman. But we're near the end this morning, and rather than starting a a new series of events, the line of the seed of the woman will continue through Seth. Just Just a sneak preview. It'll go the next in the line that we'll focus on anyway of the of the seed of the woman will be Noah. But we'll We'll see that next time. Let's, let's, uh, let's close in prayer. Father, we thank you for your word. We, we, we praise you for your word. We, we praise you for the, the vastness of the scriptures and how you weave your truth throughout all of them. We ask that you give us an eye to, to marvel at them, help us understand them, and help us glorify you in all of this. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.